A century ago, work started to make the British cemeteries of the Great War permanent. Rudyard Kipling would call them the silent cities, these vast stone cities where Britain's dead of that war would lie. Across the battlefields where the fighting had taken place, they acted like beacons to the old front line. What's their history? And what do they mean to those who walk that ground today? Having discussed the story of the missing in a previous podcast, it only seems logical to look at the story of the cemeteries in this one. Today, when we visit the Great War battlefields along the old front line, the cemeteries are the most obvious reminders of the war that we see, and for many people, it is their first direct contacts, their tangible experience with the men and the history of the Great War. These cemeteries are the sad expression of the grief that families from Britain and the Empire had in that immediate post-war period when they began to come to terms with the losses, the million dead, of the Great War. But these silent cities, as Rudyard Kipling called them, these places where we find the dead of the Great War, did not happen by accident. What led to their creation? What is their history? And in this podcast, we'll look at that. We'll examine the background to the cemeteries, we'll look at the wartime burials, the care of graves, what was done in the post-war period, the creation of permanent cemeteries, what the state of those cemeteries were by 1939 and their experience during the Second World War, and then we'll bring that up to the present day. When we look at the background to the British and Commonwealth cemeteries from the First World War, in many ways, we travel back a hundred years to Waterloo in 1815, when after that battle just outside of Brussels, the dead were collected off the field of conflict and buried largely in mass graves. A few officers were taken away for burial separately, but there was no question that the men who'd fought so bravely, shoulder to shoulder, would be buried individually, or even commemorated by name anywhere. These burial pits were not really marked or venerated, and some decades after the Battle of Waterloo, the ground on which they sat was sold to a company that dug up the remains of the fallen from Waterloo, ground down the bones for fertiliser, and extracted the teeth to make Waterloo dentures, false teeth for ordinary working people. This then, a century before the Great War, was how the fate of ordinary soldiers on the battlefield was viewed. But in 1914 the world was very different. The 19th century had changed Britain in so many ways, not just in terms of industry or expansion across the globe, but in terms of the way that people thought about themselves and the way that they viewed death. In wars like the Crimean War in the 1850s and the Boer War from 1899 to 1902, ordinary soldiers were suddenly venerated by the British public. They were not anonymous victims of a war, there were men who'd fought, and fought bravely. The institution of the Victoria Cross by Queen Victoria after the Crimean War, and its award to ordinary soldiers, I think had quite a lot of effect on the way that people viewed these men, and viewed how their fallen comrades should be commemorated. In the Crimea, there were ordinary graves of ordinary men, individual burials, and by the time of the Boer War, in battles like Spian Kop, when the men of the King's Liverpool Regiment were buried in a mass grave, a trench grave, but a marked grave on the battlefield where they'd fought, and right across South Africa, 
There were individual graves of ordinary soldiers. It was clear that Britain's view of how these things should be done had changed. And of course, one thing we should always remember is that the parents of the generation that went off to war in 1914 were Victorians, were people changed by the way Britain had changed during this period. Despite the effects of infant mortality, despite the effects of life expectancy in Britain's polluted industrial cities, the need and desire to mourn for the dead, whether a child or a parent or a brother or a husband, was strong in the Victorian period. And while death was commonplace, we can see how those expressions of mourning took place and in what forms they took by walking into any Victorian cemetery, many of which are on our doorsteps here in Britain. But the Great War was different to any conflict that Britain had hitherto experienced, not just in terms of the huge scale of its casualties, more than a million dead from Britain and its empire, but the way that it had affected almost every family in the land. Few families hadn't lost someone, whether that was a direct family member, a distant relative or a friend, close friend, in the streets of the towns and the cities where they lived. Everyone knew someone who hadn't come back from this conflict. Everyone was affected by it. And we see the expression, the desire to mourn that lost generation as it quickly became known in the British public's keenness to attend the burial of the unknown warrior in Westminster Abbey in November 1920, and before that the creation of the Cenotaph, a temporary wooden structure which it was believed would be quickly discarded, but in fact became a permanent memorial designed by one of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission's chief architects, Edwin Lutyens. Countless thousands attended those events, and across Britain and the Empire, millions mourned. But how to commemorate this generation? How to commemorate these men who had not returned? What form would the cemeteries take? Before we get there, we've got to go back to the war itself and see how the cemeteries developed. When Britain went to war in August 1914, there was no clear plan for the burial of the dead. When the fighting began at Mons on the 23rd of August 1914, men were buried on the spot, often in the garden of houses at Mons, and when the retreat began from Mons to the Marne and battles like Le Cateau took place, the dead were either buried by the enemy, by the Germans in their own cemeteries, or by local French civilians who took the bodies to already consecrated ground in communal cemeteries and buried them there. When we travel across these early battlefields of 1914, we see the widespread use of these communal cemeteries. When the war went static on the Aisne in September 1914, and the first trenches were dug on the Aisne Heights above villages like Supia, again local cemeteries were used. In the case of Supia, both the churchyard and the communal cemetery became the places where men killed in those frontline trenches were buried. This policy continued throughout the rest of that year, and when the war went truly static during the first winter of the conflict in 1914-15, and 450 miles of trenches were dug from the Belgian coast to the Swiss border, on the British front, medical officers quickly advised that British units must not bury their dead in the front line. The reason behind this was if you bury your comrades in your trench, that trench will be bombarded by the Germans and the bodies will be unearthed, or at some point you may have to do work on that trench and unearth them yourself, 
and the men in the forward area of the battlefield would be surrounded by rotting corpses and the chances of disease would be very high. So instructions were given to bury the dead in communal cemeteries in already consecrated ground or create burial grounds close to the front line. And when we look at some of those early cemeteries around Armentières in northern France and around Ypres where the British line was established, we see the creation of battlefield burial grounds close to the front line in locations safe enough to bury the dead so the men doing the burying wouldn't join those that they were laying to rest. As the great battles began with the offensives of 1915 and onwards into the Somme and Ypres and the remainder of the war, the cemeteries changed too. Burial grounds were created as the fighting moved forward. Trenches were used to bury the dead, large shell holes or even mine craters. Behind the lines where there were medical establishments and the wounded coming in and men dying of their wound, hospital and base hospital cemeteries were established from the towns and the villages just behind the trenches right back to the French coast where the main military hospitals were located. In addition, there were thousands and thousands of individual graves. And how did these come about? To give you one example, Albert Bamfield, who was a soldier in the 13th Battalion, the Royal Sussex Regiment, I've mentioned him a few times in the podcast, his unit was marching up to take part in an attack on the Somme. As they were moving towards the forward area of the battlefield, a shell dropped just behind the column of the battalion, killing one man instantly. The men from his company rushed, found him dead, and were ordered to bury him by the side of the road. Later they came back and they marked the grave with a proper cross, and the grave was registered. And that story happened thousands and thousands and thousands of times through the four years of the First World War. During the conflict, no one cared for the graves as such, particularly in the early period of the war. The men, if they occupied a sector for any length of time, would look after the burial grounds, and we see from original photographs, and I'll put some on the podcast website, oldfrontline.co.uk, they cared for these graves, and they put up often quite ornate crosses. Army chaplains registered the burials, they carried a notebook, and they wrote down where they found individual burials, or small collections of burials. They wrote down the map reference and the details of the men, and any information that was contained on the cross, and that was sent back to the war office. But this whole thing was quite haphazard, and many records were lost in transit or lost by the men themselves. One chaplain notes that he made details of a large number of burials only to drop his notebook in the mud. And while the Germans didn't target cemeteries, being near to the battlefields, or sometimes on them, they came under shell fire. Graves were damaged, often blown to pieces, and if those graves had not been registered, they could easily be lost. And it wasn't just enemy fire that could destroy graves. I think it's in the memoirs of Frank Richards, Old Soldiers Never Die, that he talks about that in a time of great cold, when they needed material to burn, to keep warm, they took wooden crosses from some of the burial grounds. Their view was these men were dead, and as they were still alive, their need was greater, and the crosses were removed and burned. So a great deal of damage was done throughout the conflict. Nothing was properly done to maintain them. That just wasn't a practical proposition. But in 1917, the Imperial War Graves Commission, now the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, were formed under a royal charter. When the war was over, it would be their job to commemorate the dead and maintain those cemeteries in whatever form they took. 
During the war, part of their job was to communicate with the relatives of the dead, to let them know where a soldier was buried, because that information wasn't always easy to ascertain. They also began to supply photographs, not so much of the cemeteries, but of the individual graves, because people requested them, and photographers were sent round using quite high-quality cameras to photograph graves and send back prints to the family wherever they were, in Britain or in one of the Commonwealth nations. At that stage, of course, visits to graves on the actual battlefields were impossible, as the war was still on. It's known that some families did manage to get across to visit graves on the battlefields, and some families who had money were able to pay for the exhumation of their fallen family member and have them brought back to Britain for burial there, in a family grave or in a place of their choosing. But that practice, after about a hundred or so were brought home, was stopped as being unfair, particularly as by that stage of the war there were so many missing soldiers who would never be brought home. When the war ended in November 1918, there were several thousand burial grounds across the Western Front alone. And by burial grounds we mean either a collection of a handful of graves, or some of the big ones, like Lissenherk Cemetery or Remy Siding Cemetery as it was known then, just outside Popperinger, behind the lines in Flanders, where 10,000 British soldiers were buried. Around Ypres alone, there were over 500 individual burial grounds, and thousands and thousands of individual graves. And what was clear very quickly was that there were simply too many cemeteries, too many burial sites, and they couldn't possibly be all maintained indefinitely. As the public desire to commemorate grew, what was to be done with these cemeteries across the old battlefields? Many in the government thought the dead should be brought home. That way, somewhat cynically, there would be no long-term financial obligation on the part of the British government to maintain these burial sites. But the practicalities and the cost of bringing thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of men home, was just impossible. And on top of that, of course, as we discussed in a previous podcast, the missing also added an element to this, because they would never be recovered, they would never be brought home, and it was felt unfair to the families of those men. So a decision was made to keep the dead where they were, to keep them in the places where they'd fallen, to keep many original cemeteries, but on the whole, to regroup them, to close small cemeteries and burial grounds and move them into new, larger ones, or to increase the size of existing cemeteries and concentrate burials there. But again, who would pay for this? It was quickly realised if it was left to the families, then the sons of the aristocracy would have huge monuments on their graves, and the son of poor Mrs Smith from a back street in Manchester, or she would struggle to pay for a wooden cross. So the government, mindful of the mood of the country to commemorate these men, agreed to take on the financial burden of their future commemoration. But how to make these cemeteries permanent, and in what form would they take? The obvious choice was to replace all of the wooden crosses with stone crosses. But Rudyard Kipling, who we mentioned before, who was one of the advisers to the Imperial War Graves Commission, knew that from his travels throughout the empire that not necessarily every man was a Christian and not necessarily every man believed. And he felt that the whole point of these cemeteries was to memorialise the dead. And he came up with the idea of replacing the crosses with a memorial tablet, a headstone, to record as much information about that man as you could, who he was as a soldier and an inkling as to who he was as a man. The government paid for the headstones, they paid for the engraving of the stones, 
and the only thing the families had to contribute towards, and I say only, was the three and a half pence per letter for the personal inscription that would be placed at the base of the headstone. They could choose up to 66 characters, including spaces, and when you look at the cost of that times three and a half pence, it's not an insignificant amount of money. If this was your breadwinner in the grave, or you came from a poor working class family, then that money could be a significant barrier to you being able to place an inscription on the grave. I once took a family member to visit a grave at Monshi near Arras, and he described to our group how nearly 20 members of the family had to pool their resources to be able to afford just a simple inscription on that grave. So while the charging eventually did stop, and some nations, like Australia and Canada, agreed to take on the costs of the funding of this on behalf of their relatives, New Zealand decided that if one person couldn't have one, then no one should, so no New Zealand headstones have a personal inscription on them. It was a policy that caused a lot of upset amongst families in that interwar period, because here were the men who would step forward and lay down their lives for king and country when it was asked of them, and a few short years later their families were being asked to pay for an inscription on a headstone. So by the Second World War, inscriptions were free. When we look at the cemeteries of World War II, at Arnhem or in Normandy or at Monte Cassino, we see far more personal inscriptions on the graves because there was no question of people being charged for them. In the cemeteries of the Great War, there are so many stones of identified soldiers where they are just blank, no inscription. But I often think, just like the term silent cities, that blank stone is a statement in itself. Photographing the graves continued to be important. It became far more of a formal process where a grave would be photographed and placed in a wallet and sent to a family member. And we'll have a look at one of those in the Great War object part of this podcast. And while this kind of work continued, meanwhile the Imperial War Graves Commission were bringing in architects, chief architects, who would come in and design the cemeteries of the Great War. So with ideas of design and concept in mind, Three experimental cemeteries were created on the old battlefields. One on the coast at Le Trepor, two on the Somme, Leuvencourt and Forceville. And people were sent to see what they thought. Feedback was given. Some changes were made. But generally it was accepted that this would be the form that British and Commonwealth cemeteries would take. And construction began. In 1922, the King's Pilgrimage took place. King George V toured the cemeteries and battlefields of the Western Front. By this stage, more than just the three experimental cemeteries were complete, and he saw cemeteries at Etarpla and Turlington on the coast, and then was taken to Tyne Cots, which was still under construction at that stage, and he viewed the scale, the sheer enormity of the task that lay before the Imperial Wargraves Commission. At this stage, cemeteries were still being regrouped, Smaller ones were closed and moved into places like Tynecott. And to give you some idea of the scale of this task, in France there were over 317,000 graves, and in Belgium nearly 93,000. This amounted to about half of those who died. Crosses were replaced by headstones. Where there was more than 30-odd burials, a cross of sacrifice was placed. In the larger cemeteries, this would be accompanied by a stone of remembrance, an altar, that would be placed in the cemeteries. Existing burial grounds were expanded or enlarged. New cemeteries were made. Adenac on the Somme, which we've mentioned in a previous podcast, had just one burial, and around it a cemetery of several thousand graves was created, that being just one example. And it was at this stage that what you might describe as the infrastructure of these silent cities was created. 
That wasn't just where the cemeteries were located. This network of beacons that marked where the Great War had taken place, it was about connecting them all together. Part of that was the publication of cemetery registers, which would list the dead for each cemetery with details about them. Families could buy these registers for a small sum, but complete sets of them were eventually placed in every major reference library in Britain so that people could go to them and see their family member's name in the register. The information that made up each entry was compiled by contacting the relatives using the last known address on army records. They were sent what was called a final verification form that had the basic details about the soldier on it and they were then invited to add more information. In some cases people had moved on and there was no response. In other cases people were so broken by the loss of this person that they couldn't respond or for a myriad of other reasons never did respond. But many thousands did and added all sorts of information. Age, details of previous service, the address of the family, where they lived, where they came from, and often lots of other information as well. Reading these entries, reading these original registers, is fascinating. People were quite open, and there was no thought that there would be any problem in including this sort of information in a register of the dead like this. But sadly, there was. When we compare a cemetery register from the First World War to one from the Second, we see that rather than say, Private Smith lived at 123 Hope Street, Manchester, we see that he's just recorded as Private Smith of Manchester. The reason for that was that in the interwar period, there were cases of people going into these reference libraries where the registers were held, looking up the details of a local man and going knocking on the door and saying, I was with your Billy in the trenches. He said that whenever I needed a meal or a bed or whatever it was, I should come and see you. Even worse were the families of missing soldiers on memorials like the Menning Gate. People would look up their details, go around, knock on the door and say, I saw how your son died. Unless you give me whatever they asked for, I won't tell you how or why or where. It was cruel and the decision was made post Second World War to not include that full information in the registers. Aside from details of the soldiers, the registers also included historical information, the history of the cemetery and some of the history of the fighting. A committee was formed, records were delved into, including war diaries, which most people didn't even know existed at that time, and information which is still useful to historians all these decades later was added to these little booklets. There was also a section on how to get there, that was an important part of the information contained in these registers because people didn't just want to read the book, they wanted to make a visit. And the register told them which train station to go to, how they got there, what road the cemetery was on and the nearest town or village. The publication of the registers and the wider growing knowledge of the cemeteries led to the publication of several related books during that period and more and more of this type were published as the 1920s moved into the 1930s. Books like the White Cross Touring Atlas of the Western Battlefields, and I'll put a picture of it on the podcast website, mapped out where the cemeteries were in a handy pocketbook. The Immortal Salient, and again I'll put a picture of that on, was a guidebook to the Ypres area, but it listed all of the cemeteries around Ypres and included a very detailed map which could be used to try and find them. Then in 1929... Sidney Hurst published The Silent Cities, quite a large volume, mapping and listing 
all of the British and Commonwealth cemeteries along the Western Front, with a photograph of all of them, unless they were still in construction, when an artist design was used instead. This was a really significant book in the historiography of the cemeteries of the First World War, in that it catalogues everything that was there, a snapshot into the commemoration of the dead at that time, and shows the cemeteries as they were in the early years of their existence. It remains the only single volume that covers every cemetery in France and Flanders. On the battlefields, to further assist those who were visiting, the Imperial Wargraves Commission obtained permission to erect road signs to show where the cemeteries were located. These were cast iron, painted green with white letters, as examples of them under the Lille Gate at Ypres, and again I'll put a picture on the website. These road signs were designed by Sir Charles Holmes, who was the late director of the National Gallery, and they are quite evocative artefacts in their own right. After the Second World War, when the Imperial Wargraves Commission became the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission, these road signs, these cast iron road signs, were replaced. However, there are a few places, a few scattered places on the Western Front battlefields where originals may still be seen, and a number of them are on display in the First World War Gallery of the Imperial War Museum. As the construction of the cemeteries continued apace, one other minor footnote in their history is the allocation of a number, a unique number, to every cemetery. Very few people realise that this number was even used now because it's not included, as far as I'm aware, in the reprints or the current reprints of the cemetery registers. The very first cemetery in France, for example, was at Le Trepot, so that was France 1, F1. And as the subsequent cemeteries were finished and completed, they were given the next available number. So each number relates to roughly, in the timeline, in the chronological timeline of when these cemeteries were constructed. The last one in France was France 1896. That was Canadian Cemetery Number 2 at Nouvelsome Vast near Vimy Ridge, a cemetery that would eventually remain open until after the Second World War. So by 1939, what had the Imperial Wargraves Commission achieved on the battlefields of the Western Front? All of the cemeteries where it had been decided to make them permanent had been constructed. The crosses had been built, stones of remembrance placed, entrances and shelters all constructed. But many of the graves had yet to be finished. There were wooden crosses in many, many cemeteries scattered right across the old battlefields. And we see this in contemporary illustrations. The last major construction work was finished about a year before the outbreak of the Second World War. And when the war started, the staff of the Imperial Wargraves Commission working on these battlefields remained and continued with their jobs. That was until May 1940, when the German Blitzkrieg swept across Belgium and France and all of the places where the battles of the Great War had taken place, some of them saw fighting again. Others were occupied by German forces, an occupation that of course would continue for the next four years. In 1940, some gardeners and their families fled to Dunkirk and got home to Britain. Others did not, others chose to stay behind, and some of those continued with their work in the cemeteries throughout those four years of the occupation. People often ask what happened to the cemeteries and the memorials of the Great War during that period. Hitler, after the war in the West was concluded, went on a battlefield tour around the sites where he had fought and in doing so encountered many of the British cemeteries and memorials. And he gave an instruction that the cemeteries and memorials from that war should be left alone and respected, and largely they were. 
There was some damage to some of the memorials that were blatantly anti-German. The one commemorating the Australians on Mons and Quentin near Peron showed an Australian soldier a digger with his foot on the neck of an Imperial German eagle, bayoneting it in the belly, and the Germans took exception to that and blew it up. But otherwise, they left the cemeteries alone. In fact, during those years of occupation, many thousands of German soldiers who were based on the old battlefields or close to them went to go and have a look at them. I have a number of photographs of them, and Andrew Thornton on Twitter often posts photographs like this from his own collection, showing German soldiers standing in the cemeteries, the British cemeteries of the Great War. When I first went to the Somme in 1982, one of the small cemeteries near Beaumont Hamel still contained one of the original cemetery visitors' books. In a little locker by the entrance to these cemeteries was the register that gave the details of who was buried there and a book, in those days a bound book, not a folder, in which visitors could give their impressions, their thoughts on visiting these places. And this particular one went back to just before the outbreak of the Second World War and included a large number of German soldiers who'd signed it during those years of occupation. I'd like to think that such a document might be preserved in the archives of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, but given the several thousand cemeteries that existed across France and Belgium and the number of visitors' books that they would have had over time, I guess that was impractical. But it was nice to have seen it, and I'm sure it wasn't uncommon in other places across those old battlefields. On the 6th of June 1944, the Allies landed in Normandy. The liberation of France and then Belgium began. By September 1944, the vast majority of the old battlefields from the Great War were now under Allied control, and the Imperial War Graves Commission had sent people forward on the tail of 21st Army Group as it advanced across this ground to see what state the cemeteries were in. Many feared that the Germans had damaged or destroyed them. Others thought that neglect, years of neglect in this case, might have resulted in some damage, but they were pleasantly surprised to find that most of them were in very good condition. In some, the grass was as high as the headstones, and a few headstones had tumbled over, but there was no significant damage, and the work to make them good was quickly completed, and the cemeteries returned to the states gradually that they'd been in before the outbreak of war in 1939. When the Second World War was over, and it was safe for people to travel within Europe once more, people did return to the battlefields of the Great War. Veterans, and I knew some who felt frustrated during those long years of the war that they couldn't get across to the battlefields, in many respects, how we feel now about not being able to travel to the Somme or Ypres during this time of Covid. They felt that for years, not months, and eventually they returned. But of course by this stage, the generation of the Great War were moving towards retirement, or had already reached that point, and the parents of those who died were well beyond that point in their lives, but still they continued. My old friend Yves Foucault, who was a gardener for the Imperial War Graves Commission just after the war, he started work for them in 1947. He was based at Peak Wood Cemetery on the Somme for some years, and he remembered that a family arrived there one day, one summer, turned up in a taxi, knelt at the grave in one of the rows, and then went away. It wasn't an uncommon occurrence, so he didn't think anything of it until they came again the next year and then the year after that. And he realised that they'd come on the same day of the same month on every occasion. And when he looked at the headstone, he realised that they'd come on the anniversary of their son's death. They continued to come 
into the 1950s and then they didn't come again. That generation passed, the parents who'd lost their sons on those battlefields of the Great War. And gradually that torch, that torch that John McRae had described in the poem In Flanders Fields, it passed from the parents and the veterans to their descendants. And gradually those descendants, the generation of the Second World War, who lived in the shadow of the first, they began to fade away too. When I first visited the battlefields in the 1980s, they were empty. Very few people travelled to Ypres and the Somme. You could spend weeks on the ground there, in what are now some of the most popular, if that's the right words, to describe them locations on the battlefields and never see another English-speaking person. So gradually that torch passed again. It passed to the next generation. And by the 1990s, with the interest in family history, genealogy, people began to look back and realise that they had ancestors that had fought in the Great War, that had died in the Great War. And gradually these names came out of the past and were remembered once more. And with it, that meaning of these cemeteries changed too. They were no longer just the silent cities, the place where the dead of the Great War lay, where your son, your brother, your husband, where his grave was. The direct connection, as such, had been severed. But we know and can find out so much about the generation that died in the Great War that very quickly they're no longer just names in a register. These are real people who we never met, but who we care about, who we feel a connection to, and who we think are worthy of remembrance. In the 1980s, I stood at war memorials on the 11th of November, and I was the only one there. Now, when I go to my local war memorial here in South Yorkshire, there are massive crowds in attendance. And this is a good thing, because it means that the generation that went through that war, and the ones that never came back, are not forgotten. Their names live on. Their names liveth forevermore, just as they should. And people in normal times travel once more in such great numbers to those battlefields of the Great War, connect to them, find the silent cities, walk amongst the rows of headstones and get a sense of the sheer scale of the First World War and connect to the individual lives of the soldiers commemorated on the headstones in those rows. They read the inscriptions and are moved by them and they begin to connect and interpret these battlefields and the silent cities that act as beacons within them in a new and different way. During the war, war artists like Nash painted these battlefields. Today, we photograph them. I can only speak for myself standing on that little winding track that moves up the slope towards Corselet British Cemetery, close to where I once lived on the Somme. Standing there with a camera in hand and watching the vast skies of the Somme close over the cemetery. Here, the crossroads of the Great War seem to meet as one. Here the silent cities don't seem so silent. There are unquiet graves on these old battlefields along the old front line. It's that part of the podcast where we look at an object connected to the Great War. And to link in with the subject of this week's podcast on the silent cities... I've got one of the Imperial Wargraves Commission photograph wallets in front of me that were sent to the next of kin of those who'd been killed and were buried in the cemeteries on the Western Front. It's a little brown wallet that folds over and on one side is a postcard image of the grave that was tucked in and then details on the other side as to who it related to. 
So it says at the top, Director of Grey's Registration and Inquiries begs to forward, as requested, a photograph of the grave of Name, Dean, Rank and Initials, Sergeant E, Regiment York and Lancaster Regiment, Position of Grave, Bard Cottage Military Cemetery, Bozinger, Nearest Railway Station, Eat. All communication respecting this photograph should quote the number YP-7-8051 and be addressed to Director of Grey's Registration and Inquiries, War Office, Winchester House, St James's Square, London, SW1. Owing to the circumstances in which the photographic work is carried out, the director regrets that in some cases only rough photographs can be obtained. Which gives us that little statement at the end, a bit of an insight into the work that these men did. So wallets like this were sent in response to inquiries from the families of the soldiers who were killed. I've picked up a few of these over the years, but this one is of particular interest to me because he's a local lad. Where I live in South Yorkshire, it's in a little valley. The village of Elsica, where I am, is in the middle, at the bottom of the valley, and on one side is the rising ground towards the village of Wentworth, where Wentworth Woodhouse is, the big stately home, and on the other side of the valley is the village of Jump, famous now for its butcher's shop and its pork pies. But all the men from these villages and the nearby one of Hoyland, before the Great War, many of them, miners, working in the collieries here, whether that was in Elsica or further up the road at Corton Wood, they joined the local Territorial Battalion, the 1st 5th Battalion of the York and Lancaster Regiment. And Sergeant Ernest Dean, who this card and the photograph commemorates, was one of them. He joined the Hoyland Company, which was made up of men from Hoyland and Jump and Elsica. And he went off to France with them in the spring of 1915, served on the front near Bois-Grenier, and then moved up to the Bozinger Canal sector along the Issa Canal, which we've discussed in previous podcasts. He was killed on the 17th of October 1915 in the front line on the other side of the canal in the day-to-day activities of trench warfare. No big battle going on, they were just holding the line and the Germans bombarded the trenches that day and he was one of those that was killed. His name's inscribed on the Jump War Memorial which I can almost see from the window of my house where I record these podcasts and as I sit here in the morning and watch the sun rise and later the sunset, I think of him going off to work in one of the collieries, walking through this valley of ours, just as I've done myself so many times. And I think what it must have meant for the family of Sergeant Dean to receive this photograph, because it's unlikely that they ever had an opportunity to travel to Flanders to visit his grave, his actual grave, and see the wooden cross that's portrayed in this photograph become the headstone that it is today. Last year I stood at that headstone myself. I stood there because I have a connection to this man now through the medals of his that I have in my collection and this photograph and some other paperwork. But more than that, living here, thinking of his family, thinking of the chance that perhaps they never had, I was doing it for them too. And I think that is the power, the tangible power of these objects that connect us to the Great War and connect us to those stories along the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reid. Do take time to subscribe to us via your favourite podcast service 
Tell us what you think using the hashtag OldFrontline. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcore, and the podcast has its own Twitter feed now at OldFrontlinePod. And have a look at the podcast websites, oldfrontline.co.uk. Until we meet again, along the old front line.